What's up, Podcast Nation, Hype Nation? It's your boy, Raj Nation, here with some updates on the fall Hype Man Roadshow speaking tour. October 15th today, depending on if you're listening to this on its release date, I am up at 2112, the creative incubator on the north side of Chicago, delivering How to Not Suck at Pitching Your Startup at 3 p.m., Would love to see you there. And then November 14th, up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I'm at the Ann Arbor Spark Incubator, delivering the same How to Not Suck workshop at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, if you have not been to this workshop before and you are an early stage startup, you gotta find a way to get yourself there. You're gonna walk out of the room knowing how to better communicate your value proposition, knowing how to master your value proposition, knowing how to make your pitch deck sexy and how to win the interest of customers, users, and investors. For a link to purchase tickets, go to startuphypeman.com slash speaking, startuphypeman.com slash speaking. Now, one more thing before we start this week's episode, we are launching the fall cohort of Hype Man Academy. That's our affordable, equity-free live online virtual storytelling accelerator. It is a 10-week live online program designed specifically to help you master your value proposition so you can pitch investors with confidence and a clear message, market to your early users, and acquire your first set of customers. The program is open to startups as early as prototype stage and as late as $20,000 in monthly recurring revenue. A maximum of 10 companies are admitted into Hype Man Academy, and right now we are accepting and reviewing applications and taking pitch tryouts for acceptance into Hype Man Academy. For more information and to apply, head to startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy, startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. All right, let's get into this week's episode. And I'm assuming like if I go over and like edit a bunch of stuff. I don't really do much editing, so. Welcome everybody to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am your show's host and the founder and creative force behind Startup Hype Man, helping startups everywhere build their hype by creating a message that sings. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's about the mindset, processes, and strategies to help you build a badass company. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation to join our tribe at StartupHypeMan.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of this show, getting an email in your inbox every single week when we drop new episodes on Mondays. You'll also get my weekly thoughts, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your hype and create a raving fan base. All right, let's dive in now to this week's conversation of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome back, everybody. Today on the show, we bring Allison Lee. Allison is the founder and CEO of Hemster, 
a, let's call it a style fitting startup out of the Bay Area in San Francisco. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Now, our topic is how do you build large scale partnerships? Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? For me, I see a lot of other early stage startups who are obviously strapped for resources and cash. And, uh, you know, the growth hacking is on everyone's minds. And for me, large scale partnerships have helped me grow the most out of all the different distribution channels. So when I talk to you um, about building up these partnerships, I think there is something that that we're doing that can be very useful for a lot of other companies. And it's been proven very successful for our growth hacking. So that's why it's always been on my mind recently. Well, as we dive into that, I think it's always important to know, like, who are we talking to and, and sort of what got us to this point in the first place? So let's peel back the layers of this onion. And well, it doesn't stink. So it's not an onion. Let's peel back the layers <laughs> of this artichoke. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think a lot of what shapes people where they're at today is their background, uh, mm-hmm. where come from where they grew up, et cetera, yeah. uh, geographically. So um, where did you grow up uh, geographically and how do you feel that impacted yeah. your own decision-making and mindset as you grew up? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was born and raised in South Korea near um, Busan, if anybody knows where that is. That's kind of like a LA of Korea, I guess. One thing that stuck with me a lot um, and one thing that was really shocking to me when I grew up there and moved here is the really big difference in like the customer service mindset. So when you go to like a large department store in Korea, like alteration services is just baked into the service layer. Like it should be just automatically altered to your size, no matter where you go. And once I moved here, it's a lot more diverse population in America, but I saw that there was a lot of lacking in the amenities portion for even the Uber um, luxury brands and high-end shopping centers. So I think once um, you get exposed to different types of like customer services and user experience and user interface um, in different cultures, that's something that kind of sticks with you no matter where you go. And when you see a new product um, in new markets, you tend to compare that to what you know best, which is you know what you grew up with, right? So for me, I'm really used to like end-to-end, um, either the retailer or somebody, whoever the service provider is, is that they own the service um, end-to-end, meaning that they're like, this is the end result I'm guaranteeing for you. I will do whatever it takes. And I saw a lot of that just not available um, anywhere in the U.S. when I moved up here. It's very similar to, I was born in the U.S., but my mm-hmm. family's from India and I've been back right. many times. It's very mm-hmm. similar to how things are in India where really there's a premium placed on making sure that you get what you are asking for at the end of the day. Yep, exactly. I remember one specific story from a few years back where um, I think my dad, or maybe it was, my dad and I had both gone to a shop to get suits made. Mm-hmm. And there really is no like off the shelf suit. It's like you pick the material and they're right. going to actually sew this into a suit for you. Right. But we, we had to leave to go to like the next city, I think two days later. Yeah. And I feel like in the U S they'd be like, okay, well 
too bad. Either you wait or yep. we can't make that or you'll have to pay, you know, a hundred yep. extra dollars for rush service. Yep, exactly. Not only in that instance did we not have to pay for rush service, mm-hmm. but they were like, okay, we'll figure this out and we're going to get this to you before you leave. And what ended up happening, I'm not kidding you, is <laughs> they got the, the tailor worked on it like the next day and then mm-hmm. the shop owner hops on a motorcycle with the suits hanging off his back <laughs> and drives the motorcycle to meet us at the airport and drive. Oh my gosh. And there was That's... no extra like, char- I mean, maybe there was like a slight delivery charge, but right. there wasn't any rush charge, any, anything right. on top of that. And it was just part of like, for them, it's all about, no, this is what you've asked for. And this is, right. this is the bill of goods that we sell. We can't yep. not deliver on that. Yep, exactly. It's kind of like the supreme customer service is part of like the responsibility of a shop owner or even as a retailer, right? Like you're almost expected to provide that kind of services no matter what. And when I moved here, I think that was like kind of a biggest culture shock. I was like, oh my gosh, like these people don't care if I buy anything from the store. No one's and, there to hold the door open for me. It just felt like, you know, like they, they weren't a part of a brand. Like they didn't really believe in the brand, right? Like the store associates that I associated with, they didn't really care about the brand. They were just there to, you know, provide the services when they asked, uh, when somebody specifically asked for it. And even then they were like, eh, not really my job. So I didn't really see a lot of proactiveness in the customer service there. Yeah. I have one theory, but I want to get your thoughts. Why do you think there's such a difference? Yeah. So I, I have a theory as well. So we can talk about this definitely. Um, so somewhere like Korea or India, I think a lot of the times people who grew up there and who live there, they're very homogenous. So I think everybody has like the same exact expectation of like what it should be. So it's a very unified um, experience no matter where you go. But once you are, once you're in um, America where everybody is coming from like a very diverse background, and it's really hard to set the same kind of level of expectation with everyone coming into the store and out of the store. So I think as retailer in US, like the most you can do is like make them go through training and really teach them about the you know, culture of the brand and like what kind of customer service you want to provide. And really good example would be like someone like Uniqlo, right? Where they have a very extensive playbook of like what an employee should do for individual shoppers. But I think that's a really difficult example for every single retailers to follow because they, they can't really filter for exactly who they're going to get as like a store associate that day, that day or yeah. hire for that season even, right? What I was, I hadn't thought about that homogenous nature. What came to mind for me was, um, and you can tell me if this speaks yeah. to South Korean culture as well, is in India, it's generally a culture that is more family oriented. Mm. And I think, and, and that extends to like your neighbors are your family, right? Right, like, exactly. Down the hall are the family, right? Like yeah. everyone, you can kind of just knock on someone's door and walk in and have some chai with them. Like, right. Um, and I think that extends into the business realm as well, where you, right. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a business transaction and don't get me wrong. People yell at shopkeepers all the time, <laughs> but there's like this inherent understanding that like you right. take care of each other. Right, exactly. Because of that family value aspect. Right. Thing I would say too particularly in India is there's just so much overpopulation that there's economic need to mm-hmm. jobs for everything possible. Yeah. Right? Like there is yep. a job of someone who just holds the door open at the moment. Right, right, right. Yep. There is a job for like most, you know, middle upper class people have a driver, right? They don't right. drive a car because right, right, there's right. just 
need and then you can get the labor for cheap. Yep. So I think that also speaks to why you'd be able to access it easier in those kinds of countries. Yeah. There, there's people who are willing to do it and you right. can, and it doesn't cost that much money, right? Right, right, right. That's exactly right. And I, I think it was really similar in Korea when I was growing up. I understand that it's like very different these days because like economically Korea has been growing so quickly so far. But rem I remember when I was there, the minimum wage was really low. As in like, I'm sure like the shopkeepers could actually hire someone to like keep the door open and like have a gr actual greeter. Right. And that's, that's like all they do and like handing out like the pamphlets and stuff. So, yeah, I think just you're right. Like the excess of like having the labor force available to these retailers is important, but also because like everybody in that community understands like, oh, we have like the same exact family values to each other that also sets the same um, tone of service for everyone coming into the shop too. And I think it's funny that <laughs> what just came to mind is um, how in India, like, you know, any shop you go to, they're going to ask you, do you want tea? Would you like coffee? Yeah. Would you like oh, that's toast? so sweet. Would you like Pepsi? Right. right. And then I'm thinking here, it's like, well, you got to go to Trunk Club to get that. And you're paying <laughs> like so much extra to get yeah. that. <laughs> like, you know, it's like baked into their margin, basically. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Club, you're like, yeah. Uh, I don't really want Coke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So aside from like, I guess the customer service difference, you know, anyone who moves countries is making yeah. a significant, undergoing a significant change in their life. So what was that? move like what was the assimilation process like and did you move yeah. to the west coast was it yeah so i moved to irvine um it's kind of it's like the suburbia of like oc basically and it's like the most if you've ever been to irvine it's like the most unrealistic city i've ever been to like it's so picturesque like the entire city basically they provide you with like the gardeners and the cleaners for the streets and they clean every day and <laughs> Like everybody has its like amazing houses. I just couldn't believe it when I moved. But just to give you like some background, so my, my dad is a psychiatrist. So by the time we moved, he's been a psychiatrist for probably like 17, 18 years. And at that point, you know, because he's dealing with so many like emotional um, trauma that he was like, I really just want to take one year break. So when we moved here, it was supposed to be one sabbatical. We were supposed to move right back. And my parents, when me and my younger brother, we went to school, they were really impressed at how quickly we're adjusting to like the American education system, especially for me, because I'm not, I like love the critical thinking aspect of American education system. So, so when I first came here, they were like, oh, wow, like our kids are actually adjusting really well. Maybe we should think about staying. So that one year sabbatical turned into seven years. And then after both me and my brother went to Berkeley together, um, my parents moved back like right after. And I see a lot of similarities of like how they were able to turn the like one year test into like seven year commitment. And it's really similar to kind of how I started Hemstar too. So when I first started Hemstar, it wasn't supposed to be like seven year commitment. It was more like, I was really burnt out from my last job where I was traveling a lot um, and I was uh, kind of a consultant before that too. So I was traveling a lot. I was kind of tired of like working for somebody else's vision and I wanted to do something for myself for just one year. And really similar to how my dad like decided to like impulsively move to America too. So 
that was early 2016 that I was like, I'm going to give myself one year to try this. If it doesn't work, great. I can just move on with my life. And there was not a lot of pressure when I first started. And then now it's my almost end of third year. And I think I can tell you probably that it's going to be like a seven year commitment, which is really similar to what my parents went through when they first moved here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very interesting connection. Can you actually rewind for a second and go back to, you mentioned you really took to the critical thinking aspect. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to this because I feel like it actually impacts probably your, how you decided to run Hempster and how you choose to run Hempster. But, Mm -hmm. um, why did why were you drawn to that and and can you compare that to the korean education yeah sure so i uh, i was only exposed up to maybe like seventh grade education in korea so i can only speak to that but i think it gets intensified more but from what i remember it was a very like memorization heavy um education for korea like there was there's a set of like correct answers that you're just supposed to memorize like the facts and figures and then all the tests were more like did you memorize these things correctly, right? It was never like, what do you think about these things, like this, these issues? Like, do you want to write an essay about it? Do you want to read something about it? It was never... It was just like a percent score and that's... The, the exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it was always like set on the curve where like you were just compared to everybody else all the time. And when I first came here, the most shocking thing was that like I went, I went, to, went into my eighth grade like admission um, class and then they asked me what classes I wanted to take. And I was like, you're letting me I have a choice? <laughs> <laughs> like, I can choose what I take in a class. Like, that's insane. Like, I've never heard that before. And just giving, just having those choices, like, for me when I was growing up, it, it just really felt like I was owning those decisions, right? And that really made me feel more motivated to, better, to do better in these classes. And another thing was like, there were so many long-term projects that I was exposed to when I moved here compared to like in Korea, where like just memorize this entire book and then you're good to go. It was a lot of like, Hey, let's read this book together for a semester. Right. And like, let's like talk about like what we thought about this book and like, can we like bring in our past experiences into like understanding the theme of the book better? Like that's, such an interesting idea for me because it really asks like individuals to come into the classroom like like let's be ready to like be vulnerable and share our thoughts and opinions with each other and of course it's like a romanticized idea because not everybody participates in the class anyways but for me that was such like a shock and for I really wanted to be a part of that and it really motivated motivated me to um get more engaged like within the session too. I think that's really interesting because if you look at sort of, I would say a key skill of an entrepreneur mm-hmm. is that you need to be able, and really what creates an entrepreneur is you look at something that exists. You mm-hmm. don't just take it for what it is. Right. Challenge the assumption of it and you have to think right, exactly. about it, right? Right. And you're always thinking about like, how can I fix it? right? Like you, you're the one who's like owning that problem. And I think that's really interesting too. It's like, you're not just letting someone else take care of it. You're like, oh, I see a problem. I think I can fix it. Like, how can I actually go about doing that? And I think it's the execution part that sets entrepreneurs really apart from the dreamers, let's say. 
like you can daydream about, oh my gosh, like I see a problem. I think I can fix it. But when you actually go do it, I think that's what really makes you a founder and the true entrepreneur too. Well, and, and this starts, this starts to get into hamster, but as you, what I'm really curious about before we really dive yeah. into hamster is you spent eight months as director of monetization, which is a pretty cool title, director of monetization for a company yeah. called Peel. Mm-hmm. Um, in your time there, you launched three new major products to market and yeah. bumped revenue from 20K to $5 million. Now, that is no small step. That is a giant leap for monetization, for mankind, for monetization. <laughs> for mankind. <laughs> for mankind. <laughs> uh, so first off, what is Peel? How, how does a company like that say, hey, yeah. you've been out of college for three years. We're going to give right. you huge responsibility. <laughs> and, and, and what did you put into place to grow revenue so much? Yeah, that's a really great question. So Peel is an IoT company. So they, what they did was they basically allow the users to change the channel on your TV with your phone. So they were improving that remote control experience and they were attempting to be like the first IoT hub within every single living room, something like Alexa and Google Home, right? So when I joined them, they also, this is a part of like the building up the strategic partnership, they were preloaded in every single Samsung phone. So they had about 200 million active users when I first joined them. And because monetization wasn't necessarily a part of their big picture just yet, um, they were probably doing about $20,000 um, annual revenue. And they were collecting 2 billion data points off of two mil- uh, 200 million users every month. And that's, I mean, you can't even compare that to any other data set that's available around TV viewership in the market, right? So when I joined them, I, I came from a very like data mining um, heavy uh, industries like ad tech and marketing where I saw these segments. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, like you don't understand this, but this is a freaking gold mine. Like there are a million like TV viewership agencies who would pay a lot of money to get to get their hands on like understanding these viewership numbers better and really targeting these viewers to like get them to actually tune into their shows or movies or Netflix, Hulu, whatever it is. Right. So they didn't really have any revenue driving product when I got there. There, It was mostly like, okay, how do I just get people to click on these tiles so they can like tune into these shows better. Right. So um, I got there. I, started building up the team um, full of salespeople who did a lot of like advertising sales for appeal. So we would go pitch to like someone like horizon who used to represent someone like um, TBS, TNT, all these big networks. And we would say, look like this is the first product that you can actually tell people how many people actually ended up watching this specific show. And there was no other company who could tie that feedback loop back into their marketing, marketing budgets. Right. So I launched like, I think I launched like two, um, ad revenue and then one data revenue product um, in my time there. And then we basically grew our client portfolio from like one agency to like 20 agencies and just scaled that up, um, across nation too. Can you explain, I guess, you know, peel is like a button on a phone, right? It's a tile on a phone. 
What what was the yeah. advertising? I, I guess what what were Experience. you selling ads for? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, like, imagine you can if you are a like TV network and you're like a TBS and you're launching a new show and you want to advertise on people's like remote controls. Like, think about how in how enticing that offer must be as like a TV network. So that was essentially what Peel offered um, as like our ad product was people are using our app as, um, as a TV remote. Like, do you want people to be aware of your show as they're tuning in to watch like a similar show on your competitive network? Mm. It's if you understand like the TV network's pain point, that is, that's exactly what they want. Right. That's like, of course I would want that. That's like a no brainer. How much do you want for it? (laughs) So we usually, they typically pay, let's say about like 13 to 14, like CPM, CPM meaning like, you know, um, cost per impressions. Right. And for us, we were charging like 30 to 50 because it, for them, it's like such a contextually relevant market that they were willing to pay a lot of premium. And that's how we were able to monetize so quickly across our platform. How did you determine what to price that at? So that was um, from my previous experience as like a monetization person as like an ad tech companies. So I did a lot of pricing strategy there where I saw that the more targeted and the more um, accountability that you can tie into these performances, the advertisers are actually willing to pay. So mm-hmm. either you can price it out as like a CPC, which is cost per click mm-hmm. or CPM, which is cost per impressions. Um, for us, because our click-through rates were so high that even if we did a click uh, cost per click for like maybe a dollar, um, our CPM was actually lower cost to us because people were so engaged on our platform. So that's kind of how I thought about it is like if I can deliver these results to the networks and they don't really care how much CPM they're actually paying because we can deliver a lot more um, clicks at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, yeah. very interesting. And I think it's pretty amazing. Again, that you were able to grow this from 20K to $5 million in revenue. Now you were only there for eight months, which is even crazier, right? <laughs> Total, I was there for like a year and a half. I oh, think okay. in the beginning I started out as, um, it, because it was such a small company, like we didn't really have like a title set. And towards the end, they were like, oh, well, you're managing like 20, 30 people. I guess you can be a director of monetization. Okay. All right. So in that like major role, but, but even so, a year yeah. and a half is not a long time. Right. You're having such success there. Why leave? And, and this, I'm, I'm going to guess this is where Hempster is born. So talk that's us correct. through that. Yeah, though, that's a great question. So for me... I love the company. I really saw Peel as kind of like my practice round for being an entrepreneur because, you know, the CEO there, he's actually an investor in Hemstar, but he really gave me like the free reins to like explore new ideas and like uh, develop a new product. So I got a sense of like what it would be like to, for me to try to be a founder. And towards the end of my time there, I just felt really burnt out, not because of like the workload, but because I was working for a vision that wasn't mine. Back with more Discover Your Inner Awesome in just a moment. But first, are you an early stage startup? 
If so, you're probably running on the messaging treadmill where you're trying to figure out how to pitch your company, how to tell the story, how to communicate, market, and sell this thing that you've built. But for every step you take forward, you get pulled back one just like you're on a treadmill because you're either too in the weeds, too technical, or your attention is pulled in too many different directions. Oh, and on top of that, you're facing the everyday mental crisis of being an entrepreneur where you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I should have listened to my family and just gotten that safe and secure six-figure job. Guess what? It's time to get off the treadmill. Introducing Hype Man Academy, my brand new affordable equity-free virtual accelerator designed to build a marketing playbook for your startup so you can confidently pitch investors with a clear and compelling message and go out and market and sell to get your first 10 or 20 or 30 customers. Hype Man Academy is a weekly live online workshop where you work alongside your fellow founders, support and help one another, and get one-on-one -on -one access with me through virtual office hours. For information on joining the next cohort, visit startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. That's startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. Fill out an application and let's discuss. Back now to our regularly scheduled programming. So I saw that like, even if I was putting in like a hundred hour weeks, at the end of the day, it didn't really matter what I wanted to do with the company because you know, the strategy belongs to like the CEO and the co-founders. And I had my own ideas of, of like how I wanted to take Peel to like the next level and to become this like amazing data company, but it just didn't align with the co-founders, right? And it really made me realize that unless it's my own vision, um, I didn't want to put in like that much effort anymore, to be honest with you. And I tried to think about, okay, I am seeing a lot of success in at Peel using the strategy of like leveraging somebody else's like network to uh, data mine and monetize on top of the da that, that data set, right? And I started looking at other industries that could also benefit from the same framework of thought. And I love shopping and I love online shopping and sizing and fit has been always a very intriguing issue for me. So that's when I started to think about Hemster more concretely. And towards the end of my time at Peel, I just kind of decided that it was time for me to try something of my own. And uh, once I left, I kind of never looked back. Now, you could have chosen one of many avenues to go, though, to build your own company. Right. How do you land on essentially on-demand customer <laughs> on-site tailoring for retailers? Honestly, if you asked me that like five years ago, I would have been like, I don't think that's the company for me. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that I started Hemster with wasn't necessarily on-demand tailoring. The bigger idea was like, how do I understand individual customers and their perfect fit data? And the mass customization was always really interesting to me. And we actually pivoted probably like twice um, in the earlier times just to see like what's the best way for us to understand this data set and how do we productize this data mining machine that I'm envisioning in my head. And for me, that's when tailoring really fit the, fit the entire bill, right? Just like if you think about it, Tailoring is something that you have to do physically, meaning I get the physical goods in my hands um, as a service provider. And 
tailoring essentially is like the user communicating to me of how I can help them achieve their perfect fit. And that piece is so useful because there is a, there is a limit to how much you can understand from like a set template, which is like a pre-made sizes, right? So for you, Rajiv, like you could be wearing, you know, medium and J crew and then large in Banana Republic, but it doesn't mean that either of those sizes are actually perfectly fitted to you. Mm-hmm. It means that you just chose like a closest size available to you, right? But the tailoring goes like a step even beyond that of like, okay, sure, like you like this medium at J crew the best, but if you could change anything about it, like what would you change, right? And also what drew to me was it's a niche market. It's a niche tool for sure, but it just hasn't been innovated for like years, like centuries probably. So for me, like it sets a really low bar as a founder of like, oh, wow, I just have to beat the industry standard, which is like really, really low. Like there's no tech, there's no customer service layer. There's no like marketing done around it. So I saw the opportunity to really like own a market, which is also really attractive if you're a founder, right? So that's kind of how I got started with the idea of like understanding the perfect fit. And then I saw that tailoring was actually a very unique and efficient tool for me to understand and collect those data. And once I started pitching this on-demand tailoring, especially to the retailers, they were really excited about the idea because it's something that's been on their to-do list for a very, very long time. But as an individual retailer, it's really difficult for them to assemble like a nationwide um, local tailors because it's the volume itself, just, just, it just doesn't um, justify them putting in that much effort. Um, but for me, it makes sense because I'm a third-party provider and I can aggregate volume across all these retailers and all the different real estate properties that I'll be a part of. So it was really validating for me to talk to these like premium retailers who are like, oh my gosh, like I want to use your service. Like when is it ready? So once you get that kind of response, you know you're onto something too. Can you walk us through the customer experience? Yeah. And, and yeah. I guess and compare it to you know, what is it in a world without hamster versus, yeah. versus the yeah. experience? Yeah, of course. So like, let's think about like how you shop right now. You know, you like browse, you know, for your closest sizes online or in store. And then you try it on in the fitting room. And if it doesn't fit you, you can either choose to buy something that doesn't fit you, which is kind of crazy and take it to an outside tailor, or you just don't buy and you simply walk away and you try that cycle again and again. So for us, we want to make sure you're fitted when you're trying on these clothes. So there's two really main forks of um, hamster experience. One is through like the malls and retailers, meaning that as you're trying on garments in these specific retailer stores or at the mall partners, um, basically a hamster is now a newest amenity for these retailers. So as you're trying on that, you know, size 32 pants and J Crew fitting room, and you're like I love the fabric, I love the colors, but it just doesn't fit me right, then the store associates are now able to use Hemster as their sales tool. So they would try to fit you in the dressing room, and then as a user, you're just getting that um, extra service inside of the dressing rooms. Okay, so now that we understand, you know, essentially how the product works, Mm -hmm. um, let's talk through this idea of building large-scale partnerships, because... Mm -hmm. You've been able to grow this thing you know, pretty quickly. Um, 
what I guess comes to mind and can you talk through this just a little bit more of this concept of, of large scale partnerships specifically through the lens? Yeah, of yeah, exactly. And that really comes from my personal philosophy of fundraising too. So if you're a founder, I think there's a lot of choices you can make about how to fund your own company. So for me, I chose to bootstrap Hempster for a very long time. And when you're bootstrapping something that kind of forces you forces you to be very creative about how to grow your company as well, right? Because you are very strapped for resources and cash. So for me, I was looking for ways to target and acquire users without having to spend any money, first of all. And how do I also become contextually relevant um, to the shoppers in the right time? So when I first started, I just went into a lot of boutique stores in San Francisco to say like, would you want to offer like alteration services? But as a shop owner, you don't have to do anything. Like there's this company called Hemster. We will literally provide anything and everything from measurement kit to like pickup, delivery, everything. Like you don't have to worry about it at all. So we onboarded about 10 stores and we saw a really good user adoption rate from these stores. The only problem was that the boutiques in general just had really low traffic. So even if we were converting a lot of users, um, the overall traffic was really low. So we wanted to go into like another distribution channel that could give me a bigger funnel, right? So for me, those were malls. And if you remember a couple of years ago, like every major publication was pumping out articles about how every mall in America were dying, right? Like every, every malls are dying. Like Sears was dying. Macy was struggling. Like, Everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is the end of brick and mortar space. And I was reading a lot of the earning reports from these major mall operators. And it didn't seem like they were dying at all, actually. They were still getting about 100 million people to come into their, come into their location every year. And they were flowing through about $100 billion worth of sales every year, too. And I was like, how can people say it's dying when this is still like 80% of like, retail flowing through these channels, right? But because it was like kind of positioned and uh, painted as like a dying industry, like a lot of the mall operators became uh, kind of desperate to try out new amenities to elevate their customer service, right? So it was a perfect timing for me to go pitch these mall executives who frankly wouldn't have even really considered the idea like five years ago. So really understanding like, how the market is flowing and not necessarily like getting scared by, you know, the media or like what you're reading on paper, because if the numbers speak the truth and if you actually think they're flowing through a hundred billion dollars worth of like um, merchandise through them every year, then just by converting 1% of that, that creates $1 billion market for Hemster, right? So for me, it made a perfect sense for me to like really, try to partner with these like giant um, mall operators across nation. Now, a couple things I want to point out in what you just said there. Yeah. Um, the first thing is you said you wanted to target and acquire users while being contextually relevant. Mm -hmm. Before I get to the other two points that you mentioned, yeah. can you just elaborate on, because I think it's a really key point. I don't want people to miss it. Can you yep. elaborate on the idea of contextual relevance? Yeah. So, you know, I was, as I was mentioning about Peel, being 
of being available or targeting the right people at the right time, I think is really important. So for me, when do you feel the most need for alterations? It's when you try on something that doesn't fit you, right? Like if you're just walking around town, you don't really think about alterations or tailoring at all, right? It has to be at that point where you're shopping and you want to buy something, but it just doesn't fit you. So you're frustrated. Like that's the emotional state that I'm targeting with Hemstar. So for me, it makes sense that like, I want to own the fitting room space. Like if you're trying on something, I want people to know that, oh, these pre-made sizes are not the end of the game. You can actually customize it to your body however you want through Hemstar. So that messaging has to get across to every single shopper walking into like my retailer partners, right? So understanding like what is that like switch going from going in user's mind and it's coming from the empathy um, perspective is understanding like when do they need you the most and how can you own that space and how can you own that experience so that they are like, oh my God, this is exactly what I needed at exact time. So that is the easiest way to convert users and really get them to remember you too. I like that a lot. It actually, it, it echoes what we teach in uh, for Startup Hype Man for our uh, virtual accelerator, which is figure out like what's the moment in time you're trying to capture in your yep. customers' lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the way I, I, I position it is there's a difference between an acute event and a, mm-hmm. and a chronic pain and you want to target the acute event because you know the example i like to give is yep. we all drive forever with our check engine light on and we don't do anything about it that's chronic that's right. pain but yep. when do we do something when smoke flies out of the hood and you're forced to pull over like, right that's exactly and you're, right and your car's in the shop so it's right. like, in your case like it's that acute event of mm-hmm. oh i'm trying something on it doesn't yep. feel right that's mm-hmm. acute versus walking to work every day and you know like maybe you're sort of tugging it like your pant leg because you like you're not but you, right. you're by that point, you're already putting up with it and you're probably yep. not going to do anything about it. That's exactly right. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's why we wanted to be in the fitting room when that acute pain is like the most prominent, right? It's like, oh my gosh, like I picked out all of these clothes from the store. I'm trying them on. Nothing fits me. That is a frustrating cycle for a shopper to go through. So when we launched at Westfield like about a year and a half ago, that's exactly what we were um, trying to fix for every single shopper is going in and out of the stores too. And organically, these shoppers were saying, look, like I buy a lot of things online and I have a million things in my closet that's, that also needs to be tailored to me. How can I use your service? Because again, they remember me and they think it is a tech enabled product that wasn't available before. Um, so they want to use me in their homes too. Mm. Meaning like, I have 30 things in my closet. I'm not going to bring it over to the mall, but I would love it if you can just come and do this whole on-demand tailoring thing, right? Yeah, and, and I think, and I'm just going to stress it even more. The key, though, is your point of entry with them is that moment they're trying on the clothes. Because no, I don't want to say no one, but it would be a much tougher climb yep. if you were trying to go out there and say, hey, all those clothes you have in your closet, yep. come use Hemster versus yep. just a natural thing they were already doing, you were able yep. to insert your company into. That is exactly right. And I think that's why like the go-to-market strategy for especially younger stage companies, you really have to think about how, like what is the first touch point 
that you want with your users, right? And I think that's why I'm a, I'm a skeptic when it comes to like paid digital media. So for Instagram, Facebook, all these guys, like, sure, you can get your brand awareness up a little bit, but it's not enough to actually convert any of the users because it's not an acute pain point that you're addressing. So for me, like, how do you either capture that moment or how do you even create it really, right? Like you can like go to these like pop-up events with the retailers and you can almost bring these like experience and that feeling and replicate that with your users, right? But understanding that pain point is probably the key and understanding how the retailers or your like actual B2B partners are dealing with it right now. Like understanding the lay of land also really helps too. Another thing you mentioned when you explained that overall strategy was you were reading mall earnings reports, uh, Mm -hmm. which first off, I mean, just kudos for that because I don't know how many people are thinking, oh, I'm going to go read the earnings reports. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sounds like a nice Friday night. But you within that, warnings, but, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but within that, um, I think the key is it's really easy to say, oh, the media is reporting malls are down. This is not a good path to go. However, yeah. and I, I, I think this comes back to the that eighth, ninth grade experience of being like, right. oh, critical thinking, right? Yep. You can open yourself up to seeing something for as it is or seeing it for opportunity to yep. insert yourself. and. Right. It sounds like what you really were able to see in this when you read the re- when you read the articles versus the real reports, right? Was okay. There's still a lot of traffic coming in. There's still a lot of money being a lot yep. of money being spent here, and because there is a downward trend overall, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's actually forcing the industry into innovation because they're not mm-hmm. they're not saying okay we're going to shut down. They're trying to yeah. say how do we get more right, down? and that's where you saw your opportunity. Yeah. And you know what it felt like? I felt like those articles were acute pain Mm. for the malls, right? Because like, sure, there was like chronic pain of like, everyone knew that brick and mortar was getting challenged by e-commerce, but like nothing was really being done about it until all these media publications were saying like, oh my gosh, like the malls are dying. And they were creating this like panicked frenzy among like the retailers. And they're like, oh my gosh, should I like rethink my brick and mortar strategy. So that actually was in a bigger scale, like the acute pain that the mall operators were finally going through. And I think for me, that makes sense when people are feeling that pain and they're actively looking for solutions. That's the best way for you to like present your solution to them and say like, you don't have to do anything, but I will actually take care of this problem for you. Right. It's like, who wouldn't want to partner with you then? Yeah. It's, your situation in particular, I think, is as I hear more about it, it's really interesting because, again, even though there's still a lot of money being generated through these malls, the retailers themselves are thinking, should we pull out entirely? Which is making the mall owners panic. And mm-hmm. say, okay, how do we keep business here? Exactly. Right. Okay. Um, can you talk through? You know, I, I have, I, we understand now like why we would go the, the, the route of malls in your scenario, mm-hmm. but how did you actually go about mm. establishing your connections? Like, you know, let's say you have like GGP, general growth properties and yep. uh, Simon's malls. Yep. Um, those are probably the two biggest players I, w- I can think of mm-hmm. now, you know, you're sitting there like, 
Are you like, okay, well, I got to find the CEO of General Growth Properties. Like, who, who do you think to contact and how do you even establish those, those relationships? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, I chose a very bottom-up strategy for that because I didn't come from a retail background, meaning like I lacked a lot of like industry network and industry contact. And I still, I, I still think I do a little bit. Um, but for me, it made sense that like, okay, the malls, who do they care about? They care about the tenants, right? They, tear, they care about like the shopper experience. They care about like what the tenants are saying. So um, we were based in San Francisco. So we have this huge mall, Westfield San Francisco Center. Just went in there one day and I talked to like every single store manager um, in the mall. And I asked like, it's the same thing what I did with like the boutique stores in San Francisco, except I just kind of went into like, the bigger stores, I guess, in the mall. You went, to, you went into a place where it takes two steps to get to the next store instead of Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, great. Like, it's even faster for me, I guess. Um, so I went in, met every single store manager and their assistant store manager and their key holders. And that was, like, all I did for a month. And then, basically, I kind of, like, rallied, like, some people together. And I was like, hey, wouldn't it be great if um, you had access to, like, on-demand tailoring provided to you through the mall? And they were like, oh my gosh, are they doing that? That's amazing, right? So you're just creating the buzz from the people who you know your partners care about. But you hadn't yet talked to the malls yet, right? So you no. were like saying, hey, what if the mall was providing? This is really smart. Okay, continue. Yeah, because I was like, well, they care about what tenants want. So I'm, if I know that tenants want this, I'm just going to take this list of people who are interested and bring it over to like the Westfield marketing team. So... I think I somehow snuck in, not snuck into, but I got like invited to their like monthly retailer meeting at Westfield San Francisco <laughs> Center. And then that's kind of how I met the GM there and also like the marketing manager who was like, oh my gosh, it's like so interesting. And I've heard about you already from one of my tenants, right? <laughs> so it's not just like, they're not meeting me for the first time. They're like, I kind of know about this company. What is this about? And they're curious. And then you're also like presenting yourself. So I think it's really important to like set the context up too, right? So that was, I want to say like early last year, 2017. And then um, Westfield probably took about like six months to close, to go from like a very local store manager to like their, ma like their marketing manager to their like headquarters and then to their legal team and like negotiating the, all the stuff. And the pilot actually launched in August of last year. And then once we did the pilot for about six months, we had like really good results. We had amazing numbers. And then the other malls called me. I didn't do any outreach. The malls called me. They were like, we saw that you did a pilot with Westfield. What is that about? Right? Because they're all competitors and they're, there's not enough differentiators between the malls right now for them to say like, Oh, Westfield is doing that. I'm not going to care about it. Like they're always kind of snooping on what, who is doing what. So I think Simon called me first and then they said, Hey, I saw that you're working with Westfield. We want to do that. Uh, yeah. Too. And of course, yeah. If they right. see the competitors using. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then like once Simon says that you take that to like GGP and Mace Rich and Tubman, all these other guys also. So Closing the first mall, Westfield, it took me like a year and a half. And then closing all four after, it took me like three months. <laughs> but it's that, it's that domino effect, right? You just, it, you just, it totally you is. One, 
Mm-hmm. But then the rest take you know minimal effort. Yeah. Exactly. Once you have that case study, it's a lot easier for you to get a get a yes from yeah. really anyone within that segment. I think. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. I, I think it's yeah, it's really smart the way you've gone about this. So you mentioned out of the gate, you bootstrapped it. Um, have you taken on? I think you did say the CEO of Peel is an investor. So have you taken on money at this point? Though? Yeah. So we. We were booster for two years and then we went through an accelerator called um, XRC Labs in New York and they were retail tech focus. So um, they were like a really good fit for us. And then we got funded through them like a very little bit, just enough for us to launch um, San Jose and LA. And then we just closed our last round um, with like strategic investors. So we didn't really take on any institutional funds. We only went after like very strategic angels. And we just closed about 400K. And that's only supposed to fund like my launch into New York and DC and Boston, these markets. Yeah. Congrats on that. Thank you. Now, one last question here before we wrap up. As you look at the growth of Hemster, Mm -hmm. um, you said, you know, the initial money was to launch uh, San Jose and a couple other California markets. Yeah. Um, How do you look at, and then you just mentioned the next stage of growth is East Coast. Yep, that's uh, correct. How do you make that decision to say, well, why don't we just go from West and work our way in versus now what you're doing is West Coast, East Coast now? Yeah. So for me, because my partners are nationwide, so we work with like the malls, of course, but we work with like retailers and apartments and all that stuff too, right? So for me, activating each market is like a land grab for me. And that's kind of how I create my moat. Right. So if Hempster is available in all of these cities and it doesn't take a lot for me to go into a new city because all the partners are already locked in. Um, all I have to do is just hire a regional team who can just manage the operation and logistics flow. But once you activate this kind of like nationwide distribution channels, you worry less about like the volume and growth. You worry more about like, I'm just going to scale it up so nobody else can come in to this market. Mm-hmm. So it's an easier decision for me to go into these new markets because it's like at this point, it's kind of like money in money out. Right. Because I know like how much money, like each malls are netting out, how much money, like apartments, like all these different partners. So if I already have like 30 people in the wait list, who are waiting for me to launch New York and Boston and DC, then it makes sense that I would raise money to go into these markets. But before I got to prove that model of like distribution channels, it, it didn't make sense for me to raise um, by then. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Can you let our listeners know where they can uh, learn more about Hempster, uh, find you, get in touch with you? Yeah, of course. Well, our website is hempster.co and everybody gets confused between hempster.co and .com, but we're .co. Um, but we are also doing a crowdfunding campaign through Republic. Um, and if you don't know what that is, it basically lets you as an individual consumer who is not accredited investor to invest in a company that you believe in um, with really low minima. So you're co-buying into uh, the company and their projection as well. So we're raising that on republic.com slash hemster too. And by the way, that's for uh, some type of share in the company, right? That's correct. Yeah. So you get um, equity at five mil valuation. To wrap up, we will finish as we close out every show giving our respective answer based on today's discussion to the topic question. Uh, I'll go first and I'll toss it to you, Allison. So our yeah. question today was how do you build large scale partnerships? 
from everything we discussed, um, what really spoke to me was first looking at where is your industry being forced into finding innovative solutions? Mm. And then two, you know, you mentioned the bottom up approach. What ended up happening out of that was you were able to get people talking about you and yep. what you had to offer before yep. you had ever actually sold the thing or um, gotten to the end buyer in this case. Right. <laughs> so um, that's my, that's what I would say is part two is mm. how can you get people how can you get the people talking about you who you know yeah. have the ear of yep. your ultimate stakeholder? And, and Right, right. I love that. And I think that touches on a lot of the things that, you know, I would go into too, but really mainly it's linked to your first point is like understanding the pain points of their end consumers and also the partners, right? So for me, like my uh, concept is B2B2C meaning I work through the businesses to get to the end consumer. So understanding the pain points of each distribution channel was a key. So that's kind of how you understand, like, how do I even build up a hype around me for these specific segments, right? Um, and that's only possible if you understand exactly what they're looking for and what kind of like acute pain that they're experiencing on a regular basis. And I think if you have that, and I think rest just comes naturally to be honest with you yeah building hype to access distribution you know that's music to my ears <laughs> <laughs> allison lee thank you for joining the show today thank you so much for having me it was a lot of fun that wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the absolute best compliment you can give is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people can discover their inner awesome. And if you want to extend that compliment further, while you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the various other networks in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as access to the over 100-episode archive, visit the podcast official site, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. And remember, for tips, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your company's hype with a message that sings, visit StartupHypeMan.com. Season 10's theme song is from Sir the Baptist. The song is called Dance with the Devil. It is off his album Saint or Sinner, which you can grab on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else digital music is distributed. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining us. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. Yeah. This a dance with the devil, girl.